Connecticut Democrats or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back to episode six of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. My name is Michael Cerulli. I'm the president of the College Democrats of Connecticut. And my name is David Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. This week, Dave and I had two outstanding guests on. I interviewed our Lieutenant Governor, Susan Beisowitz. I talked to Jeff Damaris, who is running for the state Senate in a district in uh, Western Connecticut. And uh, we talked a little bit about policy. He has so many, so many, so many good ideas for state government in Hartford, but he also has an opponent who has embraced QAnon. So we'll get around to that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, you try and you try and you try not to talk about the crazy, but the crazy just comes to you. Mm-hmm. I think that might be the slogan for the Republican Party this year. Um, I loved our conversation with Susan. It was wide ranging. We talked about the loss of Justice Ginsburg and her special and unique personal connection uh, to the late justice. And we also talked about the U.S. Census, which I understand there's been some late breaking news on. Yep. Back on Friday, a federal judge has uh, issued an injunction so they can't stop. The Trump administration cannot stop counting people on September 30th as they had hoped. And they can't deliver the data early. So they were they, the Trump administration wanted the delivery of the info by December 31st when he'll still be in office, no matter what the outcome of the election. Nope. It's got to be in April like it always is. When Joe Biden becomes president, he'll receive the census data. Outstanding. A win for all of us, I think. So the interview with Lieutenant Governor Susan Beisowitz up next on Connecticrats. <music> Lieutenant Governor Susan Beisowitz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for doing this and for having us. And it's nice to see you virtually. I feel like I see you in person a lot at the Capitol, at rallies, at uh, campaign events, door knocking, mm-hmm. all kinds of different activities. For all sure. Yeah, we run into each other quite a bit. Yes. Yes. All, it's certainly safe. I think the last time was uh, in Wilton, right? That's right. We were out campaigning for various candidates. We were out uh, door knocking with Senator Will Haskell, who's running for re-election. And we were also campaigning with Stephanie Thomas. Stephanie's hoping to represent uh, Wilton, Norwalk, Mm -hmm. and Westport. And she came within a whisker (laughs) two years ago. And now um, the incumbent, uh, Gail Laviel, um, has decided not to run. So it's an open seat. Um, And I, I have my fingers crossed. Stephanie's been out there working really hard. And I think she has a really great shot to win. Yeah, I think so too. And she's got such a great campaign team, as does Will. A lot of great, uh, a lot of my peers on the, uh, working on both races, and it's great to see him out there. So, and you and I took this great photo of a lawn sign we saw. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. On someone's yard that said, "Any functioning adult 2020." Yeah, that was that was great. And I, I think the caption that I put was like, well, there's four of us. I think I maybe I qualify as a functioning adult. Uh, there's oh, four yes. of us. You clearly you clearly do. You have the lieutenant governor's uh, seal of approval. And I know you have uh, Will Haskell's, Senator Haskell's mm-hmm. seal of approval. Awesome. Well, that's that's great. My parents will be will be excited to hear that one. Um, yes. So let's let's jump into it. Uh, we had some some tough news uh, this past weekend. Uh, for for all of us in, in America, all of us in Connecticut, and certainly um, those of us who uh, really have admired and, and, and looked and looked towards the life of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, for inspiration. Talk a bit about uh, what she meant to you and, and what her loss means to you. 
Sure. So uh, I have to say that it was a loss on a personal level uh, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a friend of my mom. Uh, and uh, they were two women that lived parallel lives for a good period um, of their of their uh, formative years. So they were both mm -hmm. children of immigrants and um, they both uh, went to law school in the early 1950s when that was not something that women did. Um, mm -hmm. And they were one of just a few women uh, in their law school class. They both did really well academically. And when they graduated, um, they, they found that a private law firm, no private law firms, big or small, uh, would hire them despite how well they did and how uh, smart they were. And um, so my mother came to know Ruth Ginsburg because they both ended up teaching law and they were both law professors. Uh, my mom, the first female uh, tenured law professor at the University of Connecticut and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, a tenured professor at uh, Columbia Law School. And they were um, colleagues over several decades. Um, they were feminists in the 1970s. Um, I remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, came to our house in Middletown because uh, she and my mother and other people were strategizing about how to pass um, wow. the Equal Rights Amendment. Wow, um, wow that's incredible. Yeah, pretty cool. And so fast forward to uh, when I was in college, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., uh, and I was doing an internship for uh, Connecticut Congressman Sam Gadenson. Mm -hmm. And my mom called me and she said, you've got to come to this American Bar Association meeting because both my mother and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were involved in the Bar Association. Um, and because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was talking about the different major cases that she had argued before the United mm -hmm. States Supreme Court. So there was one case about um, a woman who had divorced her husband, her son had died, and she wanted to be the executive, the executor of her son's estate. And a court said, no, you can't do that. Your ex-husband has to do that because he's the man. Hmm. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> Ruth, Ruth Gator ben, Gator, uh, Bader Ginsburg made this remarkable um, and very radical argument at the time, which was, the, four, the 14th Amendment, equal protection, should apply to women mm -hmm. as, a, as, as it should to men. Um, and the United States Supreme Court said, in fact, a woman could be an executor of an estate. You know, uh, there was another case, and this is why I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's known, of course, for her fights for women's rights, but she fought for the rights of men, too. Um, mm -hmm. She had a case against the Social Security Administration uh, because there was um, a woman who died who worked for the federal government, leaving her husband uh, with a child who needed support and the man was trying to get Social Security. Now, um, if a man had died and he'd been working for the federal government, the, the, the surviving wife would have gotten the support for her child. Mm -hmm. And so this was the power of Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
she fought for equal rights for everyone, men, LGBTQ people, people of color. She fought for voting rights. And of course, um, one of the uh, very sad moments was, um, you know, learning about her death and thinking about the future of women's reproductive rights in our mm -hmm. country. Because, you know, for the past almost three decades, she has beat back so many different types of challenges to the Roe versus Wade decision. And now we're at a crossroads in our country because we're thinking about whether in fact um, Roe versus Wade now uh, will be overturned because mm. of whoever the next justice um, that will be appointed, I am sure will be one that will not be in the uphold Roe versus Wade camp, unfortunately. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. I know we sort of, we sort of chuckled a bit when we were talking about the, the idea that a woman might not be able to act as an executor. But this, I think one thing for particularly like folks my age that we were reflecting on this weekend was these weren't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago that, that women, you know, would need a man to co-sign for a credit card or for a home loan. Um, you know, wasn't that long ago when, you know, something that we all took, took for granted. I recently graduated high school a couple of years ago, you know, women's and men's sports being funded the same way. Um, so I think that's something certainly people don't, uh, and I think maybe now maybe have a better appreciation for that this wasn't too long ago um, that these things existed. And and that really, I think, goes to how do you quantify the mm -hmm. power or the impact that Justice Ginsburg had on our country? And, you know, it's impossible to quantify. If you look at her support of the Affordable Care Act, you will see that in Connecticut, um, over a hundred thousand, 120 or 130,000 more people have healthcare through the ACA that wouldn't otherwise have it. Um, if you look at that nationally, there are millions of people who have healthcare under the ACA because of her support. Um, she was on the court for 27 years and we've had Roe versus Wade as the law of our land, reproductive freedom for, for women. And you can't have equality, any kind of equality for, for women unless you have control, uh, the right to control your own body. And um, she was somebody who, who fought for that. And I think there are a lot of people, uh, particularly young women, who have taken that for granted. And hmm. that is something that Interesting. we have in our state law that was codified, Roe versus Wade was codified into our state law in the early 1990s. And so we are lucky, but there are a lot of states that don't have that. And if Roe is overturned, which unfortunately looks likely, then um, you know people will realize what, what they've lost. And marriage equality is another issue that uh, Justice Ginsburg supported that is now the law of our land in every state in the country. Um, and um, I still remember when the Supreme Court made the marriage equality decision being very surprised hmm. because we thought, you know, that might still be something that we would have to wait years for. And, you know, the Supreme Court, um, even some of the more conservative uh, members realized that people move frequently from one state to another. Mm -hmm. And um, the cat was out of the bag, if you will. And uh, it only made sense. And they would be on the wrong side of history if they went the other way. 
we now go over to Dave for his interview with state Senate candidate Jeff Damaris. We are joined by Jeff Damaris, who is running in the 32nd Senate District, which is uh, fair to say it's the heart of Western Connecticut. I'd say so, yeah. All right, towns that are uh, kind of west of Waterbury. Uh, in the south, it's Oxford and down into Seymour, and then in the north, sort of Washington and Bethlehem. Uh, nice heart-shaped district right there in the middle That's of Western right, Connecticut. Yeah. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dave. Appreciate it. What are you hearing when you talk to voters across those towns? Well, I mean, I would say that the most important issue that people talk about um, is health care uh, and the cost of health care, the increasing costs every single year. Um, it's, it's really bad, particularly for families, um, when you have to deal with having people covered, multiple people covered on an insurance policy, you have high out-of-pocket deductibles, um, high premium costs. You know, it used to be that you could have a, you know, a high premium and a low out-of-pocket or vice versa. And today there's not a whole lot of distinction between the two things. Um, it's just very expensive. Uh, to give you an idea of how much it can be, you know, I, I knew somebody, uh, I spoke to somebody rather, that um, was talking about that they spend uh, their out-of-pocket expenses um, is $700 a month for coverage. And then they have an additional $5,000 out-of-pocket, their deductible. Um, so once they're all said and done, they're paying $700 a month. So around 80, I guess $8,400 a year. And then an additional $5,000 out-of-pocket before their insurance really even kicks in. And that's just, just too much for a lot of families to be able to deal with. And that's something that I think we really desperately need to address um, very, very soon. This sort of segues right into uh, the big question that every candidate uh, faces. Why did you step up and run? Um, you know, you're out there living your life and yeah. you, you thought to yourself, you know what? I can do this. I can do, I, I can do this for this reason. Why, why are you running? Well, I, I ran two years ago for the, uh, for the 68th district uh, for the uh, house. And my reasons running then are the same as uh, now. It's, you know, I really want to make a difference. I want to help people. I want to make, uh, be part of, if not right, uh, legislation that can help improve people's lives, make their lives easier or better um, to deal with a lot of the issues that we face in the state. Um, I, that is really what compels me, the, the desire to actually do good. I, I have no interest in the trappings of office, whether it's marbled halls up in Hartford or the salutation of, hey, Senator. Um, I, don't, I don't care about those things. I really want to just go and make a difference, put forward positive legislation that can help people. And that's really, that's, that's what the heart of it is. for me. You know, if you win, you get a license plate. With your district oh, yeah. number that goes I've on your heard. car. <laughs> I've heard, yes. <laughs> so uh, recently, that license plate with the 32 on it was spotted on a car that had a sticker. And this sticker refers to a group called QAnon, and I'm not going to be as coy and just lay it right out there. The sitting senator, your opponent, Senator Eric Berthel, uh, is promoting and seems to be okay with, at the very least, uh, this organization, this group, this movement, this conspiracy theorists called QAnon. He's gotten some, some, some um, condemnation uh, recently from a Republican rep within your district, Rep O'Neill, who's been there since 1988. He's sort of the dean of the Republican uh, uh, caucus. 
Uh, he was he was critical in no uncertain terms, along with uh, some columnists, and a few stories have now broken. So your district is in the news for all the wrong reasons. Um, yeah, unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case. What do you um, what do you have to say to uh, you know either about Senator Berthel? Let's not say to about Senator Berthel and this association with QAnon. Well, you know, Dave, it's been one of those things where I would I really really like to talk about the issues that are important to everybody, um, the kitchen table issues that people go through every day, whether it's healthcare, as I mentioned before, or education and making sure that our children are, are given a good quality education. Our education system is strong throughout the state. Um, I'd rather talk about how we can recover from the COVID-19 crisis, um, both economically and from a public health perspective. I'd rather talk about a whole host of other things. But this is really too important to ignore. Um, I think it's disqualifying to give uh, support to such a group. Um, its roots are in some of the most pernicious things that, uh, that we've ever heard of. Um, there's a lot of a lot of the QAnon movement has its roots in um, anti-Semitic tropes from uh, from the 1930s and even before. Um, it's in terms of drinking the blood of children and Satan worshiping and pedophilia and those types of things and casting the opponents of the sitting president as being part of this deep state cabal of these types of people. And it's of course just hideous and ridiculous. And, um, and I find that even playing footsie with, with this type of thing is disqualifying, but to then given the opportunity to denounce it, he does not, not only doesn't take that opportunity, but he distorts what they actually stand for. Um, it's, it's just, it's disheartening to me as a, as a person who believes in good governance to see our sitting Senator embrace such a thing. Um, I've had conversations with Eric in the past, not involving politics, but just conversations. And it just, it's very disappointing, uh, very disappointing uh, that he would support such a thing. Um, and, and I'm disappointed too in the Republican leadership for not making a principled stand about it. You know, there are, there is right and wrong. I don't want to moralize, but there's right and wrong in the world. And if we, if we start losing ground and losing a, a, a sight of what is right, um, as a whole, as a people, things that become acceptable that were unheard of before, uh, that that's really dangerous. And I, I, again, as I said, I don't think that person who advocates those types of things is, is uh, suitable for office. You know, I would point out, too, that he's been uh, sort of in the forefront of opposing COVID measures that we've taken that mm -hmm. have kept people safe. He was one of the named plaintiffs in one of the lawsuits um, as well to, to right. uh, impede uh, governor's ability and the secretary of state's ability to send out absentee ballots, right? right. So um, right. Uh, they'll look at those things, but... Um, can also look at what Jeff uh, stands for and wants to do. I'll tell you this. I uh, am, am not like our listeners in that I look at a lot of candidate websites. <laughs> this is not a thing most people spend their day doing, but I do. And I got to tell you, this is the most comprehensive one I think I've seen in years. It's incredible. Check it out. It is DamarisForkCT.com. Uh, uh, the spelling is a little tricky there, but if you want a link from it, it's on our candidates webpage. So go to ctdems.org and you can find it or Google Jeff uh, Damaris, D-E-S-M-A-R 
AIS. It's unbelievable. Education, tax reform, environment, social equity, gun violence, production, prevention. Um, let's talk about the education one. Uh, mm -hmm. Schools in your district are, are trying to deal with the COVID um, yeah. uh, situation. I imagine each school is doing it a little differently. What are you finding? And I know you're the, the dad of a middle schooler. So what are you finding? Yeah, I have, I have a student in high school. My daughter's in high school. She's a freshman. And my son is in middle school. He's in sixth grade. So it's their first year in each of their new schools, respectively. Um, which means that it was their last year in their previous schools the year before. My daughter didn't have an eighth grade graduation, um, which, you know, it was something that was pretty, uh, pretty widespread. A lot of people didn't get to get their graduations last year. And a lot of people are going into new schools for the first time with a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think that we need to be cautious about how we do this and how we, and, and I see that, you know, a lot of towns are exercising that type of caution, which is heartening. I think we've handled in Connecticut, we've handled the COVID pandemic crisis, which is what it is, a crisis, of course. I think we've handled it as well as anybody in, not just in the country, but I think in the world in, in terms of the response. Um, and that's a credit, not just to uh, Governor Lamont and his leadership, but it's really a credit to the people of the state of Connecticut for going along with it and saying, okay, we know we got to do things and we know this is not going to be uh, the best time that we've ever had. We're going to have to deal with some real sacrifice here. But we did come together to do it. You know, people wear masks when they go into public places. Uh, they, they, they kept their social distancing. Our, our transmission rate has been 1% or lower for a pretty good long time now. Um, I don't think it's time to, to yet start normalizing because now when you have students back in school, this is where the risk comes, where things can go back in the wrong direction. We need to just kind of ride this through a little longer, make sure uh, that the spread doesn't happen. Um, but in terms of education overall, I mean, I, I, I'm a very strong advocate in public education. I think that's the key to a successful and enriched society in a number of different ways, not just for the students, for their own personal enlightenment and their abilities to become more successful in the future, but also just even from a raw economic perspective, communities that invest in their education systems and their school systems see more people move in and they, when they see more people come and buy their real estate and, and, and spend money in their towns, it creates economic growth in those towns. And then more businesses, entrepreneurship or small businesses or even medium-sized businesses will want to locate in that area. It is, it, has a, it is the best investment a society can make is in education for, for numerous reasons. That is one of, it's got to be a dozen different things you can look up on damarisforct.com is the URL. And again, you can find all the social media stuff on our website at ctdems.org. Before we go, how's Little League looking this fall? Uh, we've had some uh, ups and downs in our team. Uh, we've got a, a bunch of great kids. I've got some uh, great coaches that coach alongside me. I couldn't really do it without them. I couldn't do it without, obviously, the kids either because it's not much of a baseball team without the players. Um, <laughs> the parents have been have been terrific too. Um, it's I enjoy doing it more than anything else. It's just great to be able to uh, teach kids the game of baseball, to see uh, how they get excited when uh, the team does well, we try to work our best to make sure they don't get too down on themselves if they don't do well. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a great experience. Uh, my son is on the team and I've been coaching him since he was in T-ball and now he's uh, in what we call the majors. So it's the, you know, these are real baseball games now with the, you know, real plays and uh, it's just, it's a thrill. And I, and I, I, I look forward to, we have practice later today and I'm looking forward to the practice. So 
wow, you've got a coach practice, you got a campaign, you got yeah. uh, you know, a whole lot going on. All right, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Damaris is running against again in the 32nd district. You can check out his website, you can check out his social media, and by all means, I'm sure you'll be uh, hearing from him on the phone or, or speaking to him at the door soon. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. We'll now bring you back to the second half of Michael Cerulli's interview with Lieutenant Governor of the State of Connecticut, Susan Bicewitz. Is there anything more we can do, for example, to protect funding for organizations like Planned Parenthood? Um, we've done a lot on that front, but now that there's this imminent threat, not just to women's reproductive rights, but to gender equality, and as you said, to LGBTQ equality, what can we do at the state level here to make sure that we really stand as, you know, as William Tong likes to say, as that firewall between, um, you know, between the federal government and their actions and the well, people of Connecticut? I think, I think that it means that um, the state will have to step up on a variety of fronts. And we've already mm -hmm. seen the threats, right? We've seen the threats from this administration threatening schools who, um, you know, allow transgender uh, athletes to compete. There's this threat that funding will be uh, pulled back for, you know, particular sports programs um, at the collegiate or the high school level. Um, you mentioned Planned Parenthood. We've been in discussions, the governor and I and uh, our administration has been in discussion with Planned Parenthood um, over the past year because mm -hmm. they've been um, at the federal level pulling back funding for particular procedures, which has meant that Connecticut uh, Planned Parenthood has had to do um, more private funding fundraising and has had to seek funding from the state to deal right, with right that. So I think states are going to be um, the, the firewall for equality and for mm -hmm. civil rights, you know, and we've been on the vanguard of, um, of uh, marriage equality, of reproductive freedom, of LGBTQ rights, but you know, I think that um, the states are going to have to do more. Um, yep. And, you know, but uh, unless, unless um, in 40 days we make right. a change, uh, which is which is why you and I are here, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's what we're it's what we're here to do. Um, you know, finally, on the point of the courts, I guess uh, one of the administrations, I mean, there's so many different fronts that they've been coming after people on. And, and one of them is a front that you are very active on. I would probably say the leader in Connecticut and maybe the leader, in the, one of the leaders in the country, which is on the census. Um, the administration has launched several different attacks on the census, and you have been undaunted in your efforts to make sure everyone, every person gets counted, which is, I think, mandated by the law. Um, mm -hmm. Talk a bit about that fight. Uh, your efforts, and if you've got a message for folks uh, regarding the U.S. Census. Sure. So uh, people should know that the last day to fill out the census is September 30th. And I like to say that the census is a social justice issue uh, because mm -hmm. it shows who we are. And that's why it's so incumbent for everyone, uh, regardless of race, ethnicity, citizenship, status to stand up and to be counted. And I know that's challenging and I know that can be hard for communities of color, for people in the immigrant community, uh, because this administration has been um, so threatening 
on so many levels. You know, they have mm-hmm. um, sought to uh, try to introduce a citizenship question to deter communities of color and immigrant communities from responding. They have, um, you know, submitted proposals not to count um, um, non-citizens in the counts for congressional reapportionment. Mm -hmm. Um, They're doing everything they can to discourage people in urban areas, and that's mainly communities of color and immigrant communities, from responding because this administration does not want to invest in social programs and infrastructure and education. And so they have actively sought to disinvest and disenfranchise uh, people of color. Um, They sought to threaten immigrants to keep them in the shadows. And so that's why this has been um, quite a fight uh, to make sure that people understand that it's important. So I like to say, if you're a family of four um, Mm -hmm. and you don't fill out the census, your community is gonna lose out on about $120,000 over a 10 year period, because that's just about $30,000 for each person. And so I've had had, um, conversations with, parents at farmers markets or um, in urban communities at big events saying, how many Mm -hmm. kids do you have? And they tell me, you know, two kids and I do the math for them. And they're like, wow, that's a lot of money. That's not going to snap or Medicare or Medicaid or Head Start or Pell Grants for college students. You know, every, every family in our state relies on at least one of the 55 federal programs that are keyed to census numbers. And $11 billion comes to our state every year because of those. And so that's why this has been such a massive effort. And here's the good news. So right now we are um, over 98.6% completely counted. 98.6%. Yep. We're one of the top states in the country and our but our appeal is still important because we need the remaining 1.4 percent of the households that didn't respond to do so by Mm -hmm. september 30th it's safe it's important and um it's easy take you five minutes for your family of of four to how does one go about filling that out so there are a couple ways to do it Easiest way, if you have internet access, is uh, to go to 2020census.gov and hit the green response button. All you need to do is put in your address, your physical address of your home, and you're good to go. You could also call an 800 number. There is a number mm-hmm. for English, a number for Spanish. And in the interim, if you hear a knock at the door and somebody shows you their <laughs> census badges, um, right. they'll be wearing PPE. <laughs> it is... Uh, it is a touchless system. You can uh, just complete it if, if you've got a census worker at your door. So any mm-hmm. of those methods will work. 
And if you hear a knock at the door and it's me and Susan Bicewitz and Will Haskell <laughs> and Stephanie Thomas, definitely open your door up as well. And say um, you're going to vote for all the Democrats that are running. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Speaking of that, speaking of voting for Democrats, I mean, we you mentioned it before. We do have an election coming up very, very soon. Um, today is uh, Wednesday, the 23rd. Well, this will be airing on Monday. I don't know what day that is, but it's going to be closer to the election. Um you were one of the earliest folks to come out in Connecticut for Joe Biden. Uh, a couple of really great op-eds in the Hartford Current. Talk about your support for Joe um, and what you're doing to bring it home in the next few days. So uh, you're so right. Um, Governor Lamont and I were early supporters of Vice President Biden. He was very helpful to us uh, when we were running in, in 2018. Um, and we were uh, very proud to support him because both he and Kamala Harris have mm -hmm. literally spent their entire professional careers in public service. Uh, Joe Biden, as a United States Senator, author of the Violence Against Women Act in the early 1990s, uh, someone who has been very actively engaged in international affairs, uh, when he was vice president for, for two terms, working very closely with President Obama. Um, and so he is friends with and has great relationships with many of our uh, allies and, and leaders across the world. Um, and Kamala Harris is someone who's been, um, you know, the leader of the largest law firm in the country <laughs> is the California Attorney General's office and mm -hmm. has been um, a fighter against the big banks, um, against um, environmental polluters. She's just been a fierce advocate for um, individual and civil rights. And um, she, like Joe Biden, has spent her entire career um, in public service. I can't wait to see her go to toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mike Pence in a debate. <laughs> I've yeah. seen her question people, you know, as a member of the Judiciary Committee, <laughs> uh, no holds bar. Uh, she's going to be, the two of them are going to be great. And um, I think bottom line, I like to say that, that, that our support, the governor's support, my support of both of them is because of their character, their competence, and their compassion and we need to restore those three c's to the oval yes. office yes. i know i know that that um both of them will be all about public service and not about um self-interest and, and self-promotion mm -hmm. yeah exactly and i'm looking forward to that debate as well that's going to be that's going to be a good great one to watch and um, so I have a question for you. I know you're the interviewer, but uh, I should, I just want to interject a question because you've been doing so much work with uh, college Democrats. Can you mm -hmm. talk about what you're doing at your college and across the state? Because I think this is really important because if we, um, to win, uh, we need young people to vote. Certainly. Yeah, it's been it's been great. Actually, I just got off the phone before this talking about planning. Um, tomorrow, we're going to have you know more than 30 volunteers on a Zoom call uh, calling for Michelle McCabe for state Senate, Jen Leeper for state representative. Oh, I was just I was just campaigning with them this weekend. Yes. They're yeah, awesome. they're, they're outstanding. Yeah. And Carla Volpe, who I saw you out uh, in front of headquarters. Yeah, we were um, waving. So we'll be, yeah, indeed. Yeah, we'll be calling for them uh, tomorrow evening, hoping to make a bunch of calls. Uh, next week, we'll be calling for candidates in Greenwich. 
Um, and, and we have other phone banks planned. So definitely follow along on our social media for those that are interested. Um, you know, we have chapters active all across the state. Um, I got off the phone last night with our chapter at Wesleyan uh, in Middletown, uh, which is, and they're just outstanding. Brian and, and Maya and all of them are uh, not just uh, working to register voters, which they are, not just working to elect candidates, which they are, but also working to build our ideas up on campuses and actually making that argument um, for why the Democratic Party and, and progressive and liberal ideals are a better way to govern, not just a better way to win elections. So I, I know I, I'm really encouraged by everything that I'm seeing. Uh, we still have to keep the pedal to the metal. Uh, it's, it's not over yet. Uh, I'll, I'll be checking in with all my chapters and with all of our partners and not just with college Democrats, but with, you know, folks with the Sunrise Group, um, you know, who Mitch is a, a classmate of mine here at UConn. Um, and, and they're organizing around the climate issue or my friend Matt Karoglian, who's organizing around the gun violence issue with Connecticut Against Gun Violence um, all around the state. Young people are rising up to the challenge. And there are folks, uh, you know, one of my I'll name drop another one of my classmates, Mike Hernandez, who works very closely with the CT Counts uh, Committee in Stanford. Um, you know, so whether it's a census or gun violence or the, the this amazing students organizing around women's reproductive rights, um, we're trying to lead the way everywhere. Um, and so. I want to thank you, first of all, for your support of us. Um, I always say, you know, we sort of have, um, when we have conversations amongst ourselves and we talk about which elected officials are sort of friends of uh, youth movements and youth and young people in politics, your name is always at the top of that list because I, I, I think, you know, you've been such a steadfast um, activist and advocate for us. Um, and that actually brings us to one I know we want to talk about uh, one way that uh, young folks can get involved with your office. Um Talk about your internship mm-hmm. program and how it's being conducted uh, now. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to name drop a final one of my classmates, Alan Cunningham, who's a great uh, college Democrat, uh, works closely with us, and, yep. and he's uh, a former intern. So talk about what somebody like Alan did during their internship. Absolutely. So, um, so in the lieutenant governor's office, every semester, we have usually six or seven uh, interns from colleges across Connecticut and outside of Connecticut. So uh, we always have students from UConn, Yale, Wesleyan, um, community colleges, um, and uh, from a host of private colleges outside of Connecticut. And this past semester um, and and the summer uh, were Mm -hmm. interesting because we had interns virtually. Usually we would love having interns that would be with us at the Capitol and get to observe uh, the session, but the session, the, the Capitol was closed, the set stopped. And so uh, our interns um, mm-hmm. worked virtually uh, with my chief of staff, my general counsel, my press people, um, with uh, all of the folks uh, in our office and sometimes with folks in the governor's office. Um, and so, I would encourage people to, if they have an interest, to apply. If you go to the Lieutenant Governor's website, you'll see the internship uh, application. Fill it out uh, and follow up with my chief of staff, Adam Joseph. Um, And we would love to have um, interns. We've had some incredible interns who've uh, written press releases, who've done issue papers and issue research for us, who've um, helped us with our Council on Women and Girls. And here's the cool thing. So 
Um, there are a lot of, of folks who uh, worked in my office as interns, and now they're elected officials or they're working wow. in government. One is mm-hmm. Rahab Ali Brennan was my legal assistant when I was in private practice, and um, he's now uh, a state representative. Um, outstanding state I have, representative at that, too. Uh, he, he's amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. Chris Liddy was a state representative. He actually won a citizenship award um, given by the Secretary of the State's Office uh, recognizing outstanding high school students. And um, now he, he is um, on the board, uh, the Governor's Board of Pardon and Parole. So there's so many opportunities. And um, I started as an intern for my local mayor in Middletown and, and worked for mm-hmm. uh, Chris Dodd and, and Sam Gadenson and that got me interested in, in politics and public service. So would welcome any interested uh, person to go ahead and apply. We'd love to, uh, love to work with you. And um, since we're uh, just 35 days away from the election, give or take, Mm-hmm. Um, I'd invite people, young people, to take a look at this. So there's a site, um, there's a, uh, a, a website called It's Up to Us, uptous.com. Go to uptous.com and see uh, how you can win a Tesla because my <laughs> daughter has uh, put together a nonprofit. Um, she's concerned about some of the issues that you just mentioned climate change, women's rights, um, uh, equality, social justice issues, and so uh, gun violence. And so uh, she wanted to make sure that young people were registered to vote um, in the right place, got their absentee ballot applications or their mail-in ballot. And so Mm -hmm. if you go to up to us, um, you can take a look at that and some lucky person is going to win a Tesla. And she's got all kinds of cool sponsors and cool influencers that are uh, working to try to engage uh, millennials um, and down to, to Gen Z. We need, we need young people to vote because mm-hmm. if we get young people out to vote, we win. Yes. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be signing up for that because I, I would like to win a Tesla. When <laughs> you? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. and everybody should. Yeah. And I'll put all my, my bumper stickers on it. <laughs> indeed, um, indeed. Yeah. My Biden bumper sticker. So anyways, um, definitely check that out, guys. Um, we're going to hopefully, I mean, actually, hopefully too many people don't check it out because I want to win that Tesla. <laughs> but uh, register to vote. Sure, uh, yeah. Yeah. Get out there. Uh, volunteer. Um, Susan Bicewitz, any final uh, words before we ended here? Just uh, this message. Um, make a plan to vote on November 3rd, uh, whether it's by absentee ballot, Mm -hmm. whether it's in person, uh, your voice is your vote and you've got to vote like your life depends on it because it absolutely does. Your life depends on it. Your rights depend on it. Please vote. Thank you so much to Lieutenant Governor Susan Bicewitz for joining us this week. I really enjoyed our conversation and and Susan and I and all the candidates that were out uh, canvassing in the past few weekends will be out there in the coming weeks as we talk to more voters and lead up to the election, which is coming closer and closer by the day, folks. I saw her out in Cheshire. I saw pictures of her out in Cheshire with Senate candidate Mary Abrams and with House candidate Jim Jinks. So 
uh, Susan Beisowitz coming soon to a district near you. And no matter what district you're in, ctdems.org slash volunteer is your way to get involved. Look, the clock is ticking. We are running out of time. Votes start, start getting cast in Connecticut on October 3rd. So if you want to be a part of uh, making sure that this election goes the way you want it to, please join us, ctdems.org volunteer. So we will see you all out on the campaign trail and we will see you next week for the next episode of Connecticut's, the CT Democrats podcast. Thanks for listening.